in every age, the next generation always seeks to express itself in a radically different way of life. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the hippies of the 1960s or the goths of today. Every new generation generation expresses its discontent with the world and the society that they are inheriting. Every next generation looks around and sees the culture and the society that it is inheriting and it longs for something that is radically different and you see it expressed in the way that they begin to live their lives. John R. Stott is a Christian writer and theologian and has written a number of books. I was reading something that he wrote this week and he really captured this essence of the next generation. I want you to look at this quote on the screen. Listen to what he says. Today, the younger generation continues to search for a place they can be at home. They feel alienated by the prevailing culture. If today's young people are looking for the right things, meaning, love, reality, they are looking for them in the wrong places. The first place they should be able to turn is the one they normally ignore, the church. For too often, what they see in the church is not a new society which embodies their ideals, but another version of the old society which they have renounced. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are not different from anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end, is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for Himself. This people is a holy people, set apart from the world to belong to Him and to obey Him. Its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is to be holy or different. In all its outlook and behavior. The fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus opens his mouth and he begins to describe a way of life that is radical. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus begins to unfold for us a different way of living. It's a way of life that is extremely counter-cultural. It's even counterintuitive. It's the life that followers of Jesus Christ have been invited to experience. And yet I'm afraid today that much of the church in North America has settled for something far less. This passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It describes for us the lifestyle of kingdom people. 
people that have devoted their lives to follow, to, to follow Jesus Christ. And yet I'm, a, I'm afraid today in North America specifically that the church has settled for a way of living. We've been so influenced by our culture that, that we are, instead of radical, simply comfortable. Instead of different, we've been put on a shelf and classified mostly as irrelevant. The world does not see the church as this unique, radical expression of life. The world looks at the church, specifically in North America, unfortunately, and sees the same old, same old. If you do a statistical analysis of society, you will find that the statistics do not hardly change at all in North America, whether you are surveying people inside of the Christian community or outside of the Christian community. You pick the moral issue and you do the study, you do the statistical analysis, and you'll find that there's not much variation between those who claim to follow Jesus Christ and those who are living in the world. And so the world looks at what we have to offer and they unfortunately come to the conclusion that John Stott wrote, you are not different from anybody else. And yet what Jesus calls us to is radical. We as a church family... Last weekend embarked on a journey studying Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going to take the next year, year and a half, and we're just going to walk verse by verse right through this that is what is captured by many or called by many the most powerful sermon ever preached. It's been titled the Sermon on the Mount. And our hope, our goal, our ambition, our aim is to take this powerful message of the Lord Jesus Christ and to hold it up to our own lives. And my prayer is that each of us will ask some very hard, very penetrating questions about our own lifestyle. We'll look at the invitation of Jesus. We'll see these powerful, radical, even revolutionary statements that he makes. And we'll examine our own heart. We'll look at the way we live our lives. And see if we too maybe have settled for something less than what he's called us to. Jesus begins this powerful sermon with a series of statements that are so radical, so countercultural that we've decided to examine each one of them individually. We're going to take these first eight statements and and each week just look at one of them. We began last weekend and it's this section that we familiarly know as the Beatitudes. Last weekend we gave you a, a definition of what a Beatitude is and I want to put it back up on the screen. A Beatitude is a declaration of a radical way of life made possible in Christ. Now that's an important statement. Man, when you begin to read the Sermon on the Mount, when you start with the Beatitudes, the first discovery you come to is, that's not me. 
There's no way in my strength, there's no way in my power and in my ability, there's no way we can muster up enough willpower to manifest the principles taught in the Sermon on the Mount. What we find recorded in the Sermon on the Mount are deep truths that can only be fleshed out in our lives through the person of Christ manifesting His life in us. What we read in these verses are the character the attributes of Jesus Himself as they are manifest in our lives. So these are declarations of a radical way of life made possible in Christ resulting in real, unshakable happiness. We've simply entitled this beginning section, Be Happy. Each of these Beatitudes begins with that little word blessed or blessed, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. And it's a word that at its root means to be happy. But it's not happy in its usual sense of happiness that is based on positive circumstances around me. It describes, according to John MacArthur, that inner joy that is the fulfillment of every longing of the human heart. Although these things, as we read them this morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we might read them and go, wait a minute, that's, that's not what culture says brings happiness. And that's true. These are countercultural statements. They, they don't even logically sometimes add up. But if we'll, if we'll discover the, the truth of these verses and let them be fleshed out in our lives, we will find a real, genuine happiness that strikes at the very core of our soul, an inner peace and contentment that can only be found in Christ. So with that, take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 4. We looked at the first three verses last weekend. We're going to look at verse 4 today. The Bible says, When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where we were last weekend. Now this weekend, verse 4, look at it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to read it out loud with me, just that one verse. Here we go, one, two, three. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Even reading that, it doesn't hardly make sense, right? Blessed means happy, mourn, happy are those who mourn, happy are the sad. For they shall be comforted. That that statement raises a few questions, doesn't it? I want to ask three this morning. Here's the first one. What is mourning? When Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn, what does he mean when he uses that word mourn? The word mourn is a word that is not very commonly used in our culture. 
It's not used that often. It's not a word we use every day. As a matter of fact, even when we use it, it is usually isolated to one aspect of life, and that is death. When we use the word mourn, we are usually talking about someone who is grieving the loss of someone that they love. They are in mourning. We use that term specifically and usually only in the context of grieving in the case of death. Webster defines the word mourn as to feel or express grief or sorrow. Even the definition that we find in our dictionary is a definition that really relates to that period of grieving the death of someone that you love. But when Jesus uses this word in Matthew chapter 5, he is speaking about something that is much deeper and much broader than just this definition. There are nine different Greek words that are used throughout the New Testament that we can translate mourn or grieve or sorrow. Of the nine different Greek words that are used in the New Testament, the one that Jesus Christ uses here is the strongest and most severe of all nine of those words. Johnny Hunt is a mentor in my life. Johnny Hunt is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, the church that launched us when we came here to start this church. Johnny Hunt's going to be preaching here in two weekends when we celebrate our Global Impact Celebration together. We're looking forward to having Pastor Johnny here teaching us from God's Word. But listen to what Johnny Hunt says about this word mourn. He says, it is defined as the kind of grief which takes such a hold on a man that it cannot be hidden. It brings an ache to the heart. Blessed are those who mourn. This mourning is a deep sense of grief, but it is also a celebrated spiritual quality of the life of a Christian. It is not something that's looked down upon. It's not something that is negative. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. It's a celebrated spiritual quality in the life of a Jesus follower, and also it is a constant quality. Here's what I mean by that. When the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, it's, it's in the present active tense, meaning that it's ongoing, continuous action, meaning that you could literally translate it like this. Blessed are the ones who continuously mourn. Here's what that means. This spiritual quality of mourning is not something that just happens in a season of our life. When we typically use the word grief or mourning as Christians, we typically identify it as a season that someone is going through, a a period of mourning. But Jesus here says, blessed are those who follow me, who live with a continual spirit of mourning. It's not just a season. It's the constant practice of the life of a Jesus follower. With all that kind of background and context, let me give you a biblical definition of the word mourning. Look at it on the screen. Mourning is a brokenness before God that is born out of truth revealed through my fellowship with Him. Mourning is a brokenness before God that is born out of truth revealed through my fellowship with Him. 
You see, as I deepen my fellowship with God, as I grow in intimacy with Him, I become more aware of His holiness, His character, His greatness, and His desire to manifest His glorious life in and through me. And I am broken before Him as I realize how far I am from what He has for me. That's this idea of mourning. As I deepen my fellowship with the Father, as I grow in intimacy with Him, and I grow to know the greatness of God, and I see the glory of God, and I understand the holiness of God, and I see the faithfulness of God, and the compassion of God, and then I realize that this God desires to manifest those very qualities in my life, and I recognize how far I am from the person that God desires me to be, it produces a deep sense of brokenness in the life of the follower of Jesus. Stuart Briscoe said it this way, Repentance comes deep in the soul of a man when he realizes all God has in mind for him and how little of it he has appropriated. When he begins to understand what God wants to do with, for, in, and through him, And he looks at what has been not or has not been achieved. His heart breaks. There are two primary expressions of this in the life of a Christian. There's an inward expression first. The first expression of this brokenness could be best captured with one word. It's the word conviction. Conviction happens when we become convinced about sin in our lives through being exposed to God's truth through fellowship with Him in His Word. You see, as I spend time with God in His Word, God reveals areas of sin in my life. And that sin in my life brings conviction. The Holy Spirit of God brings conviction of that sin. And it produces a brokenness before God. How many of you enjoy going to the movies? Let me see your hand. I I love going to the movies. I do. I I love going to the movies. And when I say I love going to the movies, I love the whole movie experience, all right? Getting there right when the movie starts is not going to the movies, all right? If you're going to go to the movies, you've got to get there early enough to get all your buckets of whatever you're going to eat during the movie. And I know they overcharge for it, but it just tastes better there for some reason. I don't know why. But I get all that stuff, man, I got armloads, and I, I go into the theater, and I sit down in time to, to, to do all the little things that, you know, they got the little text questions and stuff on there, and then there's all the previews before that, and, and, and I like to get there for the whole experience. You ever, you ever been to a movie, and you sit there in the darkness of that theater, man, and you're watching the movie, and you're just enjoying all the stuff you're eating, man, you're into the movie, and you get up, and you go to the bathroom, and you walk in, you go to the bathroom, and you stand in there, and you look in that mirror, and you think... My goodness, I have spilled something all over my shirt. Now, when you're in the theater, you didn't even realize it. It didn't bother you. You're enjoying the movie. You're enjoying the food. But, man, when you went in the bathroom and the lights were on, you realize you're a mess. The Bible says God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. You see, as you and I press into intimate fellowship with God, 
God in His glory begins to shed His light abroad in our lives. And you know what I realize? Man, I'm a mess. There's so much in my life that is so contrary to the character of God. There's so much in my life that is so far from what God desires in me. And when I see who I am in light of the glorious character of God, it produces a deep sense of brokenness in my life. Now, this is a continuous process, right? Because we never arrive. We never get to that place where we got everything done, right? Because just when you think you've got everything open and laid bare, God shows you something about your character that a week ago you didn't even realize was sin. There's stuff in my character that God's dealing with today that a year ago I didn't even realize God didn't like it. But man, as we grow in intimacy with God, God continues to woo us into a a deeper fellowship with Himself. And the closer we get to Him, the more we see those areas in our life that displease God, the more we see those things in our life that don't line up with the character and the, the person of Jesus Christ. And it produces in us a deep sense of brokenness. And listen, it's not only a continuous process, it's sometimes a very uncomfortable process. But as we we work through those moments of mourning, it's in that mourning that we find comfort. And we're going to get there in just a minute. The first expression is conviction. Let me give you the second expression of this in the life of a Christian. It's an outward expression. And it can be best summarized with the word compassion. You see, as followers of Jesus, we should not only be broken by sin in our own lives, but we should be broken by the effects of sin in the lives of others. You see, not only do I realize that I'm a mess, but as I look at this world in light of the holy character of God, you know what I recognize? Man, this world's a mess. And you know what that ought to do in my heart? It ought to break me. You see, as I grow in fellowship with God, I realize that this world is fallen. We have things in this world like poverty, disease, natural disasters. Where does all that come from? Let me tell you where it comes from. It is the curse of sin in the world. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every disease and every situation of poverty and every natural disaster is a direct result of somebody's sin, and now God's punishing. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. God did not create the world to experience disease and pain and suffering and poverty and natural disasters. When sin entered into the world, the Bible teaches us that all of humanity suffered a great fall. And now all of creation is under the curse of sin. And today we have disease and we have natural disasters and we have poverty and we have death because of the effects of sin on the world. And when we recognize Recognize that in light of the holiness of the character of God, it should produce in the life of a Christian a brokenness before God. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a favorite author of mine. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Look at it on the screen. 
The man who is truly Christian is a man who mourns also because of the sins of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same in others. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world. And as he reads his newspaper, he does not stop at what he sees or simply express his disgust at it. He mourns because of it. Because men can so spend their lives in this world. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the moral muddle and the unhappiness and suffering of mankind and reads of wars and rumors of wars. He sees the whole world in an unhealthy and unhappy condition. He knows that it is all due to sin. And he mourns because of it. Listen. It is unfortunate that often Hollywood demonstrates more care for the fallenness of our world than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we understand the real cause. Let me give you some statistics of our world. Over 3 billion people, that's half of the world's population. Over 3 billion people live on less than $2.50 per day. It's less than $1,000 a year. 1.3 billion people live on less than $1 per day. Over 25,000 children under the age of five die every day from poverty-related causes. Now here's what that means. Those deaths are preventable. 25,000 children per day from poverty-related causes, that means that one child dies every three to five seconds from poverty-related causes. That means that 17 to 18 children die every minute. We'll be in this service about an hour and a half. You you do the math. 17 to 18 children die every minute from preventable causes because of the effects of sin on this planet. There are one-fifths of the world population, 1.2 billion people that don't have access to safe water. As followers of Jesus, we should not simply be vocal about sin and its effects on society and our displeasure with it. We should be broken before God about it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 9, The Bible describes a scene where multitudes were bringing people to Jesus and they were broken. They were people that were diseased, 
They were people that had infirmities and disabilities. People that were at the point of death. And Jesus looked on this mass of humanity and he was touching them and he was healing them. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35, When he saw the multitudes, he felt compassion. The word compassion is a word that describes a, a deep hurt at the core of who I am. The Bible says when Jesus saw the pain and the suffering of this world, when he saw the effects of sin on this world, the Bible says he was moved to compassion. What is that? Let me tell you what that is. That is mourning. A brokenness before God. Yes, it's an inward expression of conviction of my own sin, but it's also an outward expression of compassion. When I realize the effects of sin on this world. And man, as the church of Jesus Christ, I believe specifically in North America, we have settled for something far less. We live in a Christian culture in North America that spends 95% of all of its resources on itself. 5% of the world's population. A brokenness before God. Well, here's the second question. What, what is the promise concerning those who mourn? Well, look back at the verse, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. You see, when you and I walk in a spirit of brokenness before God, I can't explain it, I don't even understand it, but when we reach these points of brokenness before God, we find comfort. The word comfort here is a word that, that's a compound word. It means to call to one side, to, to come alongside, to bring encouragement and aid and help and comfort. It means to exhort in the way of consolation. But there's an interesting thing I want to point out to you about this word comforted. It's the Greek word parakaleo. You say, woohoo, why, why do you tell us that? Because in John chapter 14, Jesus says, and verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another what? Helper or comforter, depending on your translation, right? Who's He talking about? The Holy Spirit of God, right? You know what the word helper here is, the word comforter? You know what it is? It's the word parakletos. It is the noun form of the verb that is used in Matthew chapter 4. What does that mean? Here's what I believe it means. I believe as we walk in brokenness before God, He reveals truth to us by the Holy Spirit of God in our innermost being that brings us comfort and joy. God convicts us of our sin, but then through the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our life, God brings comfort through the great truths of Scripture. Let me illustrate it. First of all, we find comfort in the truth about salvation. Turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 7 and 8 are two of the most transparent chapters to me in all of the Word of God. Man, we find Paul writing here in the middle of a wrestling match. Paul is struggling with some things in his own life, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he's writing it down for you and I to be able to interact with it. And I want you to see if you can identify with some of this. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. That's a good amen verse, right? I mean, we can all identify with that, can't we? Look at verse 19. For the good that I want to do, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Anybody identify with that in the building this morning? Yeah, come on now. Get honest. We're in church. You know what Paul's doing here? Paul's mourning. God, I see who you are. Lord, I see your character and your holiness and your desire for, for my life. But Lord, I realize that there's something in me that is so far from what you desire. Paul's feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Look what he goes on to say in verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul says, man, I know that God's put his life on the inside of me, but I also know that in my flesh I have a longing for the things of this world. And Paul's about to tell us, man, there's a war going on on the inside. Anybody identify with that listen what he says look at it in verse 22 for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man man I want what God wants but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members listen to verse 24 this is the expression of mourning wretched man that I am you ever feel that way as a Christian? You know what Paul said? I'm a mess. Who will set me free, he says, from this body of death? And then the sweet Holy Spirit of God reminds Paul of the great truths of salvation. And in the next verse, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, man, I realize I'm not the man that you desire. I realize that I struggle so much with the things of this world. But listen to what he says, God, I thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have made me clean. Look what he says in chapter 8 verse 1. He opens that chapter with the word therefore. Now I've told you before it's important when you see the word therefore. Therefore means based on what I've just said. Now I want to draw this conclusion. Paul just said man I'm a mess but thanks for Jesus. Why? Because therefore there is now no what? 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, when I get into the presence of God and I realize how far I am from who God is and I'm convicted in my sin and I'm broken before God and I throw myself on the mercy of God, God says, son, I don't see you as a mess. I see you as righteous as the son of God himself. And I'm working out in you that which you could never do left to yourself. We find, listen, mourning brings brokenness, but it leads us to comfort in the great truth of salvation. Secondly, we find comfort not only in the truth about salvation, but we find comfort in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Read on in chapter 8. Man, Paul's struggling with this stuff. Paul was a human being like you and me. He wasn't a super Christian. He was wrestling with this stuff in his heart. Paul began to look at his own life and he realized, man, I can't live this stuff out. Look at verse 11, chapter 8. He said, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. Listen, Paul was in that moment of recognition and realizing and mourning and conviction before God. There's no way I can live this stuff out. And the Spirit of God said, I don't expect you to live it out. I'm the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I now dwell inside of you and I'll live through you in ways that you could never dream possible. And we find comfort And the truth of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, here's the comfort. We're broken. We realize I can't do it. But then we're comforted to know we don't have to. We can live in dependence on the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. Thirdly, we find comfort in the promise that this world is not all there is. And we begin to look at the problems and the situations of this world. And we're broken before God about it. It grieves our soul. Oh, but then the sweet Holy Spirit reminds us that this world's not all there is. Look at Romans 8. Read on down. Look at verse 18. Paul's wrestling with this. Look what he says in verse 18. Man, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You know what he's saying there? He's saying creation is under the curse of sin. Sin is running rampant on this earth and it's bringing poverty and disease and disaster and all the things that we see. But Paul says, man, creation is longing. Creation is anxiously waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus because this world's not all there is. Look, he goes on to say in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. You know what the Bible's saying here? That same thing that's said in the Old Testament. Man, if we don't praise God, the rocks are going to cry out because they're longing for the glory of God. Verse 23, and not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope 
for what we do not see with perseverance we wait eagerly for it Paul said man when I see the effects of sin on this world my heart is broken before God but Paul says, I find comfort in the truth that we've been saved and we've been set apart and we have hope that this world is not all there is. There is a world to come where the principles of the kingdom of God will be manifest in the life of every person for all eternity. That's why in the glorious book of Revelation, John wrote and he said, there will be no more weeping. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears for the first things have passed away. We find comfort in mourning. Well, let me ask the third question and I'm finished. What are the hindrances to mourning? If we've missed it in North America, why have we so missed it? Well, let me give you three, and I'm just going to mention them this morning. There are probably others, but these three probably are the foundation of any others. Number one, we've missed it because of a lack of fellowship with God. You see, in our culture of Christianity, we have substituted activity for intimacy. We've substituted busyness for beholding. As Christians, we look for all the things we can do. We miss the very thing that He's invited us into, and that's intimate fellowship with Himself. Remember what we said broken or mourning is? It's brokenness born out of truth revealed through fellowship with Him. Unfortunately, in America, our attitude towards fellowship with God is I need to go to church once a week so I can get my pick-me-up for the week. Listen, we need to come together as the body of Christ, but let me tell you something. We need church every day. I need to meet with God every morning of my life. I'm that desperate for God. But one of the reasons we don't experience brokenness is a lack of fellowship. Number two is a lack of understanding God's ultimate desire for my life. You see, because we don't spend time with God, we, we miss the essence of what His desire is for us. We think God saved us so we can go to heaven when we die and miss hell. You're missing so much of the story if that's all you understand. God didn't just save us so we go to heaven when we die. He saved us that He might produce in us the life of Christ, that He might conform us to the image of Jesus, that He might manifest His very holy character in us. Look at the way 1 Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 1. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. God desires to manifest his holy character through your life and mine. And when God manifests his holy character, then the world looks at us and says, man, there's something different about those people. But we think sometimes God just saved us so we can go to heaven when we die. We don't understand his ultimate desire. Number three is a lack of coming to grips with the severity of sin. We live in a culture that thinks sin is trivial. We think it's a joke. We call it a little mistake or a bad habit. Yet in reality... Sin is rebellion against a holy God. And it is the most destructive force in the universe. And I'm afraid today, as Christians, particularly in North America... We have become so influenced by our culture that we have lost sight of the severity of sin. Not just the big ones that we could all name. Do you realize in the sight of God the worst sin that you could think of is no more responsible for putting Jesus on the cross than the slightest little reaction of your flesh to a personal offense. All of those things before God are rebellion against His character and the most destructive force in the universe. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to speak to us right now. We acknowledge by faith your presence here with us. And we ask you to speak, O God. In the quiet of this moment, as you sit with your head bowed before the Lord, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you right now, just in your heart, to try to go to a place where it's just you and God. And I'm about to ask you a few questions. And after I ask you these questions, Teddy's going to begin to sing. And after he sings through one time, we're going to all stand and sing with him. But here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to respond to the wooing and the promptings of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. 
Maybe that means for you, you just need to turn your seat there into an old-fashioned altar. And maybe you just need to spin around and get on your knees right there. And just cry out to God. Maybe you need to come to a pastor or a prayer volunteer that are going to be here at the front or along the sides or at the back. And just say to them, man, I need God. I need to deal with some things in my own heart. I've been influenced by this culture. I've let things creep into my life. I'm not walking in a spirit of brokenness. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to respond in your heart as God leads you. Here's the first one. Are you living a life of brokenness before God? When's the last time you wept? over the sin that's in your life or the sin of this world. Are you pursuing intimacy with God? Are you pursuing fellowship with Him on a daily basis? Are you settling for less than God's desire to produce the holy character of Christ in you? Are there areas of sin in your life that you're not taking seriously? That you've just begun to excuse as a bad habit or just a mistake or... And God's calling you to something greater than that today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a people that are broken. May we be a people that seek fellowship with you. May we be a people that cry out to you. Lord, break us. Produce in us your holiness. Lord, we love you today. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all of us say together, Amen.